Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 301st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of his generation's most respected actors of stage and screen. Known best to some for his work in Terry Gilliam's 1985 film Brazil, to others as the Bond villain in Roger Spottiswoods' 1997 film Tomorrow Never Dies, and to others still for his portrayal of the High Sparrow on seasons five and six of HBO's Game of Thrones in 2015 and 2016, respectively. He is the winner of two Tonys for Comedians in 1977 and Miss Saigon in 1991, a nominee for two Emmys for HBO's Barbarians at the Gate in 1993 and the BBC's Cranford in 2010, and he has recently done some of the best work of his career playing Cardinal Bergoglio turned Pope Francis in Fernando Morellis's massively acclaimed drama The Two Popes, which premiered at the Telluride Film Festival last month and which Netflix will release in theaters on November 27th and then on its streaming platform on December 20th. The great Jonathan Price. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel in New York, where Price is currently starring on Broadway in The Height of the Storm, the 72-year-old and I discussed his unusual path to acting, the family tragedy that profoundly changed him as a young man, the massive controversy that erupted when it was announced that he would be playing the engineer, a Eurasian character, in Miss Saigon on Broadway, why he initially turned down a part on Game of Thrones at the outset of the series and then accepted another later in its run, what it was like to play one pope opposite another played by one of his acting heroes, Anthony Hopkins, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Okay, Mr. Price, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Born and raised in North Wales, United Kingdom, in a small village called Carmel. And when I was born, my parents owned a small uh, grocery store. Mm Mm-hmm. And before that, my father, he was born in 1905, traditional thing then, mm-hmm. uh, working class family, left school at 13 and went down the mines. Ah. So, uh, and rescued from the coal mines when he married my mother. By your mom, yeah. yeah. And I read that early on, it seems like art was the primary passion and to this day, I think, is an uh, interest, a hobby of yours. But at the time that you were going through schooling, you go off to art school, you go off to teacher training, college. What was the game plan? What was the long-term goal at that point? Well, the goal at the time was to be an artist, mm-hmm. be a painter. So I left school at 16, then went to art school for two years, and then went to a teacher training college, mm-hmm. um, which seemed a good idea at the time. You'd have a backup of yeah. being able to teach art. But you had to do a subsidiary course, and... All my friends said uh, the easiest course to do that required the least amount of work was the drama course. <laughs> so I signed up for it. There were only three of us, a young girl my age, uh, 18, 19, yep. and a mature student. And, um, yeah, we did a – it was tough to place the three of us. I was going to say. The college was near Liverpool, and I joined Unity Theatre, yes. which was run by my then tutor, Jerry Dawson. Yes. And I started working with them, and it was interesting for me personally in my development because for all the work I'd done uh, in my paintings and my drawings, the praise was never the same as what I was getting from my acting. Wow. And I thought... This is interesting. Yeah, maybe time to reconsider. I quite like being told that what I'm doing is good rather than me saying it's, yeah, it's okay. Right. And whose idea was it that you applied to RADA? 
my college was up the road from an all-girls college, and they put a notice on the board saying that they wanted men for their production. So I ran. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was a good thing. (laughs) And uh, I got a part in this production, and their tutor had been an actor, a man called William Murray, Uh and uh, he'd been to RADA, and he was the one who said to me, have you ever thought of being an actor? And I said I hadn't. You know, I'd never dreamt about it or anything. And uh, he said, well, I think you should, and I think you should go to RADA. And he sent off for the application forms, and he coached me through two audition speeches, and I got in. With a scholarship? With a scholarship, yeah, because I'd had my government grant yeah. for teaching. So how did your folks feel about this path that you were now going off on? Well, it, it was a, a time, this was in the late 60s, and uh, the way I grew up was the way a lot of my contemporaries grew up. Our parents were, they weren't disinterested, <laughs> but they they weren't ambitious. Mm-hmm. They just wanted, you know, if what, if what I wanted to do was what I wanted to do, that was fine. Right. It was certainly going to be better than staying in Hollywell in the small town. Right. And... Uh, yeah, they, they they were supportive, and my sisters were supportive. I have two sisters, and they helped me, you know, to buy a refrigerator yeah, or right. buy a cooker or pots and pans. Yeah, the family have always been supportive. Someone who was less supportive was named David Perry. Who was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, sadly, David Perry has now passed, but I always took great delight in every interview um, mentioning his name because he was my tutor, like a personal tutor at RADA. At RADA, yeah. Yeah, he was supposed to be taking care of me. And he, he he said that the only thing I would ever be good for was to play a villain in a TV show. Uh, the particular TV show was Zedcast. Okay. And, you know, with these things, I'd had negative things said about me in school, the grammar school when I was 16. A headmaster who uh, said I was a disgrace to my family and <laughs> I would never do anything. Why? And, what was this uh, about? Why, why would they? Oh, well, I, was, I wasn't a great student. I only did the things I was interested yeah. in. So I did languages and art yeah. and English literature and anything else. Like maths, I, I was away the day they told you what algebra was. <laughs> so I never, I never caught up. But this particular headmaster, Sidney Davis, he was always... Uh, and he wouldn't allow me to go back for the sixth form. They wouldn't let me go back to school. And then uh, and I was always being sent to stand outside his room. Mm-hmm. He'd do a sweep of the corridors, and I had to be sent out for misbehaving, for <laughs> making people laugh right, or whatever. Right. And, um, say, Christ got to my room, and I'd stand there, and then I'd be humiliated by the rest of the school. And then... Um, Cut to a few years later, I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I did a matinee of Antony and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And a call came from the stage door and it said, there's Mr. Sidney Davis here and would you come down to see him? And I thought for a brief moment and I said, no, <laughs> send him to my room. <laughs> so then this old man came into my yeah. room and I uh, you know, smiled at him and then he said, I always knew you would do well. <laughs> One of those. classic. <laughs> yeah, right. And I didn't argue with it. Yeah. But, but then you think back at the, all the sort of negative things you were getting, maybe that inspires you yeah. to, to show them. I, yeah. don't know. I didn't think at the time I'm going to show them, but something uh, pushes you. Yeah. you. Yeah. So after graduation, you got into experimental theatre, right? And this well, is I got it, No, it was political theatre. Political theatre. Yeah. Which you, you, these days it would be experimental yeah, right. theatre because uh, where's political theatre? Right. Yeah, it was at the, a theatre that I used to go to when I was in college near Liverpool, the Everyman Theatre. Mm-hmm. And 
they were kind of inspirational because when I knew I was going to be an actor, I thought that that's the kind of company I want to work with. Why do you think that was? Well, because it was, they had a point of view. Not all of their work was political. We did a a mix of uh, classical theatre and new theatre, new plays written for the company. And people that the poet Adrian Mitchell wrote plays for us, John McGrath wrote plays. But it was a performance style that I found very appealing. And it looked as if it was anarchic. It was like controlled anarchy somewhere (laughs) on stage. And that's where I got my first job with Alan Dossa. I believe you also met another important person in your life there, right? Where did you meet the woman who oh, you... Oh, Kate. Kate yes. Yeah, my wife. My now wife. Um, it's like 50 years almost, right? It's 47 years, wow. but we've only been married about four years. Right, right. We were, you know, we wanted to make sure it was the right thing. <laughs> yeah, Kate was, uh, she was at the Playhouse Theatre yeah. in Liverpool, and I was at the Everyman, and we met, and... Uh, Within two weeks and having met each other about four times, I left my wife and she left her husband. Wow. And we moved in together and that was, yeah, 47 amazing, years ago. Amazing, amazing. After not that long, I don't think, you wound up in Nottingham. And yeah. there was somebody who was watching you, at, I think, in an early production or rehearsal or something you were doing there, Trevor Griffiths, who then decided, let me write a part for this guy or let me tailor a part that I'm writing yeah, for this yeah. guy. Can you take the story from there? I'd gone from the Everyman to Nottingham. Yeah. Part of the impulse of going to the Nottingham was to work with Richard Eyre, but it also meant that uh, I doubled my wages of £21 a week <laughs> to £42 a week. And this was uh, right. high living in those days. Right. Also, Richard was doing work not dissimilar to what we were doing in Liverpool under Alan Dosser. And he was commissioning writers then to write plays for the company, David Hare, Howard Brenton, and Trevor Griffiths. And Trevor, yeah, as you say, had seen me in doing other things. And he had this character of Gethin Price in the play. And it, uh, I hope it was a coincidence that he was called Price, but I don't know. <laughs> he wrote it... Um, this is Knowing comedians. that I would play it. Comedians, yes. yeah. And just because it was, I guess, in a way, the first major part you played, correct me if any of this is wrong, but sort of like a Lenny Bruce character almost, a little bit of a... Well, he was you... a, the, the play ostensibly is about, it's a night school yeah. for working men. Yeah. This school is a school for comedians, how yeah. to be a stand-up comic yeah. in the clubs, yeah. which were then flourishing in the north of England especially. Mm-hmm. The comedians then were the kind of racist, sexist, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. And my character was a, a working-class guy. I think I was, remember rightly, I was a delivery van driver. And the teacher had been, an, was an ex-comic, an old comedian. And I was his star pupil. And it was the night of the auditions for the London agent. That's the second act of the play. Mm-hmm. And... The other people in the class did their acts and they were fairly conventional acts. Some were more racist and sexist than others. They sort of betrayed the teacher on the night. Mm -hmm. But I also changed my act on the night. I came to the class with my head shaved, (laughs) which was then a symbol of skinhead, violent skinhead, Manchester United, whatever, football supporter. And did this very strange, ultimately violent act on stage. Then the third act was a, a discussion between me and the teacher of where I'd possibly gone wrong, what I had or hadn't mm-hmm. done correctly. It was funny, but because it was written that knowing that I would play it, it was one of the, uh, I had the most difficult time finding the character. 
because usually what I like to do is to be cast, mm -hmm. to be given a part, and then find my way into it. Mm -hmm and uh, subvert what people's expectancies of what that character is and of what I norm mm -hmm. normally would do. When you have something where it's written for your talent, yeah. shall we say, I find it very difficult to find that That's person. so interesting, yeah. Um, I struggled for two weeks until I sat down with Trevor and we talked it through and uh, he gave me a few more insights on how I could approach it from the outside rather than the inside. Yeah, it proved the play was a great success. Yeah, we that should role. say uh, started at Nottingham Playhouse, but then Old Vic in London, and then Broadway. Your, this was yeah. your Broadway debut. Yeah, win a Tony, yeah. not a bad way to start. Yeah, but I think before it went to New York, you had an experience that, just on a personal level, might have been more important than anything. It sounds like, from what I've read, if if what I've read is correct, which is that it sounds like you did not have a particularly open line of communication with your father no. for much of your life. And so when he went to see this in Nottingham, how did he respond? The terrible thing was that, uh, yeah, we, as you say, we'd not had a great relationship and uh, we were too alike and we were always butting up against each mm -hmm. other. Nothing he did would be right for me. And uh, he was just a man who, he, he, he didn't, uh, put me down ever, but uh, it was just something he couldn't. Uh, we didn't have a, a great relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I hear I'm very envious of other people who talk about their fathers and the you know things their fathers taught them. My dad was always out at work in the shop or drunk, mm -hmm. and then he had a nervous breakdown, and my communication with him was even more difficult. Mm -hmm. And then he came to see comedians, and he said to my mother which was an extraordinary thing for my father to say, was, I wish I could have... I'm going to cry now. Um, sorry. I wish I could have uh, talked to John the way the teacher talks to him. And uh, it's ridiculous, I'm crying, but I'm... Um, anyway. And then he had a... Uh, uh, he was attacked, he had a, a stroke, and he never spoke again. So we never had that conversation. We never could build on this thing. And uh, when I came to New York, I would talk to him on the phone, and it was a one-sided conversation. He would make noises, and I would tell him everything I thought he wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. And then when we were doing comedians, he died. And I never went home for the funeral because we were about to open and all that kind of thing. So for a long time, there was a lot of what you now call unfinished business yeah, with yeah. us. But I've had the great fortune to be able to work that out in my work. Not you know. least being Hamlet, right? Pretty yeah, soon after yeah. that. I mean, just to clarify the circumstances for a listener, if it's all right, I mean, it sounds like he was essentially being robbed at his grocery store. Yeah, it was a young, uh, a teenage boy, uh, run away from home, gone into my dad's shop and uh, asked for some cigarettes. When my father turned around, he hit him across the head with a, a hammer. Jeez and stole the cigarettes and a, a pint of milk, I think, and ran away. And my father survived that, but that night is the night he had the stroke and had a series of strokes. He died in 77, and in 19... Coming up to 19, 1980, yeah. Richard Eyre, was, who was the director at Nottingham, yeah. had been the director at Nottingham, had been given the choice of any play he could do at the Royal Court. And he said, I want to do Hamlet, and I want to do it with me. Mm -hmm. And... Initially, I was, oh, I don't know if I, you know, it's, it's a big thing to do Hamlet, and I didn't know if I had anything I could particularly bring to it. 
And there was a specific thing that we were trying to work out was the ghost mm -hmm. and how you, in the, the 80s, how you would present a ghost that would be credible mm -hmm. and maybe frightening for a contemporary audience. And we started thinking about uh, The Exorcist mm -hmm. and how scary that was and all that. And then I began to think, how was he seeing this ghost? And something had happened to me with my father in that uh, because of all that thing, like I said before, was this unfinished business between us. And I so wanted to see him that I think I conjured him up and I had visions of him standing in the room or standing across the garden. Just, and they were momentary and then they'd gone. And then I was relating that to Hamlet and how Hamlet's father had died as a result of a violent act and how Hamlet had not done anything to avenge that act. And I hadn't, I hadn't done it. My sisters were 10 times more angry than I was. And they, I don't think it's too bad to say about them, they would have liked revenge. Yeah. And I hadn't had those feelings. And then I thought about Hamlet not having those feelings about his father, but wanting to see his father. And so that's what we did. We jump ahead to yeah. Hamlet so wanting to see his father that he conjured up the image of him as the ghost. And he was then, a la exorcist, was possessed by the spirit of his father. And I spoke the ghost's lines as if in a you know, fit of possession. Mm -hmm. And we had to fiddle a bit with the text because we couldn't have other people seeing the ghost, right, right. which they do in a regular production. Was it cathartic? It was cathartic. It was also incredibly amazing theatrical sort of image for people to see because, you know, I started in this distorted body and this distorted voice and the audience, some nights, you, I could hear tittering. Yeah. Because it was extraordinary. You wouldn't think, oh, God, he's, he's speaking with this weird voice. But then it goes on and on and on and uh, it becomes more and more chilling for the audience. Anyway... It worked. Well, people yeah. still talk about it as one of the best Hamlets they've ever seen. You won the Olivier. And I wanted to ask you, though, about in between Comedians and Hamlet, you had your first, I think, dabble with Hollywood. I think it makes sense. You win your Tony. You, you try your hand out in Hollywood. How did that go when you first went out there? And then, I mean, screen acting, just generally, it's a. it seems like it would be a totally different skill set, right? Well, I've done, in between all these theater things, I've done two television films. Yes. Uh, one that was written for me by Adrian Mitchell called Daft as a Brush and another film called Playthings and they were both directed by Stephen Frears. Yes, early Stephen. And um, so I, you know, had a go at it. Yeah. Stephen, you might not hear this, but he, at the time he wasn't all that helpful to mm -hmm. me. I mean, he had an idea of film acting and he had an idea of what he wanted me to do. And before every take... He'd say Jonathan, and then he'd run his hand over his face, which meant make your face a blank canvas. And it was kind of interesting in the, the Playthings film, and it should have worked, because I was the normal centre of the film, and a lot of extraordinary people and things happened around me. Mm -hmm. But I, when I'd go and see Rushes, and ultimately when I'd see the finished film, I was really dissatisfied because I could see nothing yeah. happening. yeah. And the mistake I was making was, uh, yes, I was making my face a blank thing, but I, I wasn't putting any energy into that 
blank canvas. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until I worked with Terry Gilliam, who was, instead of saying, make your face a blank canvas, was just saying, give me more, give right, me more, give me more. Right. And I, in Brazil, it was very satisfying because I could fulfill all the remit of film acting, but also I could bring my sense of theatre to the performance. Sure. And it was more energised and ultimately then more satisfying, you know. And just if anyone's keeping track at home, before Brazil, in the decade leading up to it, Voyage of the Damned was 1976, small part, but amazing cast. Wicked This Way Comes, 1983, I think it was a a result of Hamlet that Jack Clayton wanted you for that, which may have been your, was that your first Hollywood film? Yeah. And then Brazil, which just, if anyone hasn't seen it, I guess the phrase that's used most often to describe it is Kafka-esque. It's, you're playing this guy, Sam Lowry, a government clerk who makes one mistake that causes a whole lot of headaches for him and others. And I just want to ask, because he's somebody that you've collaborated with, I think, as much as anybody, how did you and Terry Gilliam first cross paths and what led to you being cast in that? Um, We met at a screening in London. He was sitting behind me. A screening of Bertolucci's 1900, yeah, parts yeah. one and two. So we were there. <laughs> he was sitting behind me for quite a long time. <laughs> and he was with Michael Palin. And I'd been on television the night before in a comedy. And he tapped me on the shoulder to say hello. And that was it. And then he got in touch and offered me, I think he's called the Evil Genius, mm-hmm. in Time Bandits. Yes. And I just finished playing Hamlet. And I was absolutely broke. I had no money at all. And at the same time, I was offered a film called Loophole. And uh, Loophole paid uh, three times <laughs> at least more money than Time Bandits right, was going right. to pay me. And so I took Loophole. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, otherwise, right. it was except the, you know, I, I read the script and uh, I couldn't see much in it. Yeah. But the leads were being played by Albert Finney and Martin Sheen. And I thought, well, if Martin Sheen's doing it right. and Albert Finney's doing it, it's got to be someone in it, so I'll do it. And um, the filming took place uh, in Bray Studios. It, it's set in a sewer where you're working your way up into a bank mm-hmm. to rob the bank. And uh, as the weeks went by, you'd talk to the other actors and they'd say, um, why are you doing this? <laughs> and they'd say, well, I heard you were doing it. So I thought, if you were doing it... It must be good. And eventually I went into... Traced this line back and I went into Martin Sheen's trailer and I said, Martin, why are you doing this film? Because <laughs> uh, he was sitting with his head in his hands at the time. And I, he said, well, when I was younger, I was an usher in the theatre when Albert Finney was doing Luther. And he became my absolute hero. And when I was offered the chance to do this film, <laughs> I thought, well, Albert Finney's doing it. And we traced it all the way all back, the way back to Albert who was sitting on top of a million pounds, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, That's anyway, funny. it was interesting. But then Terry still went ahead, and he had quite a fight to cast me in Brazil. The producers didn't want me, and um, Arnon Milchin didn't want me. Terry was fighting and fighting, and uh, I had to screen test. And at the time, I was playing, ironically, this at Martin Luther, on a television film, and I had my hair cut, and the uh, the tonsure, the ball piece cut out the back right. of my hair, and I was I looked like a medieval monk, and I was trying <laughs> to do this screen test for Sam. <laughs> they, um, they put stupid wigs on me, and uh, anyway, the, it culminated in my having to go to meet Arnon Milchim 
at the St. James's Hotel uh, in London with Terry. And I knew this guy didn't want me, and we sat there, and it was just <laughs> the meeting was going downhill and downhill. <laughs> but eventually, Robert De Niro came out of one of the rooms in the suite with his son, who was then aged about six, seven, eight, I can't remember. Right. And they came into the room, and De Niro, who I'd not met before, looked at me, and he said to his son, do you know who this is? And his son said, no. And he said, this is Mr. Dark. And his son went, because <gasps> <laughs> he'd seen something wicked this way right, comes. Right, and right. so this all got about it. So then De Niro goes and his son goes and I relax a bit. And I said to Arnand, have you seen something wicked this yeah. way comes? And uh, he said, no. And I said, well, if you had, you wouldn't cast me as Sam. And he said, Jonathan, you're sitting in front of me now. And I still wouldn't cast you as Sam. Oh man. oh, man. So I made my excuses and left. I went home and uh, Terry phoned. I said, oh, Jesus, well, that's it. That's, it's all over. And he said, no, 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 he wants you. I said, what do you mean he wants me? He said he hates me. I said, no, no. He said, uh, Bobby is impressed with you. And if Bobby's impressed with you, Arnon's impressed with you. So in a way, we have De Niro's son to thank for all of this. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And I hope Arnon hears this. Yes. Realizes <laughs> we'll send pain it to... he put me through. Yes. There you go. Now, when you were... I'm not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> when, when it came time to actually play this character, since you're so associated with that character in film still to this day, people, it might be one of the first that come to mind for people. Mm. I just wonder, was it a difficult one for you or did you find that you just connected with it for no, some I connected with straight away. Yeah. I knew when Terry gave me the script I knew I wanted to do it yeah I had the best time because I was in work every day and then every so often every week or so uh, some new people would come in you know Bob Hoskins would come in and we'd have a great time and then Michael Palin would come in De Niro would come in and it was great and I for me at that age it was the perfect role because my hero in the film had been Jimmy Stewart mm -hmm. and it was the, I thought this is the nearest I will ever get to playing a Jimmy Stewart role right right and uh, with that honesty and that simplicity and that uh, some kind of integrity while at the same time being a loser <laughs> but um, and it was interesting that the script when we started shooting we shot all the real world scenes and we were saving the fantasy sequences for later and Terry's impulse was to write the fantasy sequences. That's where his interests lie. And yeah. the, the, the story was a way of getting through to being the superhero. Right. And as we shot it, he just got more and more interested in Sam's world. And so there are fewer and fewer special effects scenes. I heard he kind of... Uh relished um, when you were hanging from ropes or yeah. whatever, he reminded you you should have done time yeah, this, right. was my, this was my punishment <laughs> right. for turning him down. Yeah. There was one, maybe the only negative uh, aspect of that film was something went wrong with a stunt, right? Was there a gun fired wrong? Yeah, by my ear. Uh, there was a stuntman who was supposed to be guiding me through one of the battle scenes in the offices, and uh, he had his arm around my chest and his gun over my shoulder. And he had no reason to fire it. It shouldn't have been loaded. He pulled the trigger. It knocked me to the ground. And I had immediate ringing in the ears, which lasted for days. 
severe ringing. And then uh, for the intervening, um, however many years it is. Yeah, 34 years. I've had tinnitus in my ears, which is uh, a nightmare. Yeah, it just never uh, stops there's making no, noise. Never, I never hear silence. Ugh. You get used to it. You live with it. Yeah. You, um, um, <laughs> I can hear it now. Yeah. Up until you've mentioned it, yeah. I can't hear it. Yeah. But... Um, it's a shame, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, the musicals I've done and the singing I've done, that doesn't affect my singing, but anything loud or, you know, electronic music is, uh, is a nightmare. So, oh. yeah. um, so the film itself comes together, and I don't know when you became aware of this, but apparently Universal thought so little of it that they were going to basically yeah. dump it. So how did it come to be that we're here 34 years later talking about a movie yeah. that people consider a classic? Well, they, they didn't want to dump it. What they want, what Sid Sheinberg, who was the, then the head of Universal, what he wanted to do was to re-edit it. He wanted a happy ending. Mm -hmm. He wanted a Hollywood ending. He'd been an editor, and so that's what he did. He did his own version. Terry asked me and others not to cooperate at all, to do any extra ADR and mm -hmm. all that stuff, so I didn't. Mm -hmm. So what America saw and saw on television for years was the Sid Sheinberg really? version. Really? Okay. Where it's a happy ending. Um, they, I'm with the girl, and the stormtroopers come in, and we escape up into the sky. And so you don't go back into the kind of torture chamber where you, there is a, a version of a happy ending, but it's Terry's. And uh, you have to decide whether it's a good thing to live in your imagination or a bad thing. Mm -hmm. For Terry, it's... That's how he wants to lead his life. Yeah. And how he wants, when he's older and whatever, he'll have his imagination. Yeah. And uh, for me, that is the absolute nightmare. <laughs> I, I, the yeah. idea of being in your head, right. kind of locked in, yeah. uh, no, That's so funny. gives me the creeps. Yeah, he did other things. He cut out the Father Christmas scene because the, it, was, it was like showing Father Christmas in a negative light. Oh, my God. Um, Anyway, it's what is so gratifying is wherever I go in the world and I get cast by directors, younger directors, who've grown up revering Brazil mm -hmm. and revering Terry. It's just great because yeah. it is a great film and it was great to work on it. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that you've done musicals and I think the beginning of that chapter in a way is... Miss Saigon. And the funny thing is that not even the, some of the folks behind that, as they went into the casting process, were aware that you sing. Yeah. And I think the backstory is kind of interesting because, as far as I understand it, Cameron McIntosh knew that you sing only because you had reached out about Phantom of the Opera, right? Yeah. So yeah. how did this all come back around where they weren't going to put you in Phantom of the Opera, but... Well, I, it was me who wasn't going to put myself oh, in Oh, you Phantom weren't going to put... Okay, no. so tell me how this <laughs> well, came it was, about. It was, I did the, I'll, I'll try and keep it short. I was playing Macbeth at Stratford, organized the first night party in the Dirty Duck pub across the road, mm -hmm. sang Witchcraft backed by my three witches <laughs> in crooner style, accompanied by the young Simon Russell Beale on the piano. Wow. My agent, then agent, Jimmy Sharkey, who was my agent for like 30 years, saw me, said I'd forgotten you could sing. And I, and I, in the meantime, I'd seen Les Miserables because mm -hmm. I'd worked with Patti LePone, we'd become friends, and I'd gone to see her mm -hmm. in that. Absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. He said, I've forgotten you to sing, you should do a musical. I thought of Les Mis, 
I said, yeah, that'd be a good idea. He represented Michael Crawford. Michael Crawford was leaving Phantom. He put my name forward. They tested me with the MD over a few days uh, who reported to Andrew Lloyd Webber, Hal Prince, that I could sing mm. the role. I went to meet with them. They were very keen that I do it. And they said, have you seen it? I said, no. And they said, well, do you want to? I said, I think I should. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to see it the next night. And I thought, this is not for me. This, is not, this isn't Les Mis. It's oh, not wow. that energized, you right, know, right. emotional piece. It's, it's obviously very, it, it was incredible to, to look at. And it was, I could see why people liked it. Right. But I thought I couldn't bring anything to it. So I passed on. So you passed. Okay, so. Yeah. And then they're casting Miss Saigon. Nick Heitner says, this is like a year later, yeah. what we need for this role is Jonathan Price, if only he could sing. <laughs> and Cameron said, well, he can. He can. So then they got me in to sing for them. And I sang the uh, MC from Cabaret yeah. on the stage of the London Palladium. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if it goes no further than this, you know, as a child, I had grown up knowing the London Palladium was yeah. the kind of acme of uh, theatre. Uh, at least I'll have sung on the stage of the Palladium. Yeah. And then they, and then they, that, then they came up to me and they, they said, that's great. And they offered me the part there and then. And you knew which part you were being concerned yeah, for. Yeah, but I remember my agent saying, don't say yes. Whatever you do, don't say yes. So I said, mm, yeah, I'll think about it. So, um, but just for bargaining purposes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, this is the part of the engineer, yeah. a Eurasian pimp and profiteer in Saigon at the end of the war. You go and do it at the Royal Theater in 1989. Wonderful notices goes over. This is a huge thing. I know when you were doing it in London, it was at a point where you guys had not yet decided, let's not do prosthetics or, or yellow face. That was still the case. Now it's coming to Broadway and all hell breaks loose, right? Yeah. What was your first sign that this was not going to be a smooth ride to Broadway? Well, when, when um, it was in the press and uh, Cameron was uh, keeping me informed that there were a, a small group of uh, American Asian actors were protesting about my playing a Eurasian and the irony of that being it's a mixed race character, mm -hmm. but uh, I wasn't allowed to come down on either side. Mm -hmm. And this went on and on until the, the protest got so much that uh, equity were considering not allowing me to come. And it was, you know, I was at home in London, I was uh, doing other work and I was getting all these reports and the, the things said about me that I, that I was racist mm -hmm. in doing this role. And it was, it was just filled with ironies because... The company in London was a completely diverse company. There were people of all different ethnic backgrounds playing all kinds of roles. So it, it didn't seem an issue. And I'd come from the Royal Shakespeare Company where we pioneered blind casting. When I'd done Macbeth, we had blind casting in that, a mixed-race cast. And I, to be confronted by this and have these accusations, it, it was, like, bizarre and hurtful, mm -hmm. and I, but I couldn't have my voice. I wasn't allowed to, to talk to them. And then Cameron said, well, if you don't allow him to come, well, I'm pulling the production, and that would have meant 
you know, a lot of people wouldn't be employed. Production wasn't going to happen. And we should just note this had $25 million in advanced sales, a, a then record. So people were hungry to see it. Yeah. But uh, this was now this was now going to impede that. Yeah. Yeah. But they, it, it, we, we got over it and I was allowed to come and do it. And it was a great success. But what happened from it was a thing is something that had already happened in Britain was that people became aware that there was an inequity in casting mm -hmm. and that people of ethnic minorities or different ethnic backgrounds weren't being seen for roles that weren't obviously, uh, you know, the, 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 that a, a Chinese person wasn't supposed to be a, a, a just a, a whatever the, the stereotype was at the time. And casting became much more open and uh, it was a very good argument to have had, and good things came from it. You've said that, and I just found this particularly interesting, was that prior to, long before that episode, you had actually, in a kind of back and forth in England, been on the other side of that argument in a way, right? Hadn't there been protests over some other production where you had been arguing sort of in your own, for for colorblind casting, right? Are you referring to the Royal Shakespeare Company? I don't. I, I found a quote here where this time I was the figure I had been fighting against, but I believed in the show and what we were doing, close quote. There had been something before that where it was sort of a, a similar situation, but you had found yourself on the other side. Well, there was, if if we're talking about the same thing, yeah. it was that when I did uh, Macbeth at, at Stratford, yeah. the night before yeah. we were starting rehearsals, I saw posters in the town that the production was sponsored by Barclays Bank, who were then huge investors in South Africa mm -hmm. and the apartheid regime in mm -hmm. South Africa. And I said, went in the next morning, went to Trevor Nunn and said, I'm sorry, I can't go ahead with this production if we're sponsored by Barclays. I right. didn't know about it. You didn't tell me when we were setting up the production. Right. And there was kind of a dawning of realization on even Trevor Nunn's face then, yeah. saying, oh, my God, yes, of course, you're right. Yeah. So they did take away, they rejected the sponsorship of Barclays and their name was taken off the production. But then that set off a whole thing of uh, I was getting letters and thing protests and messages stuck on my car and stuff about, you know, who did I think I was to do this? And then this was the multiracial cast anyway. So then they, these same people started objecting to that casting. So, yeah, that's right. You know, that's why I found it ironic that I was... On the Being you know, here a, we yeah, go again right. with Miss Saigon, but for different reasons. Interesting. Well, regardless of uh, where people fell on that, the fact of the matter is you won the Olivier for the London performance and the Tony for the Broadway one, so people certainly loved your work. In the midst of doing Miss Saigon somehow, and I don't know how this is possible, but were you shooting a film during the day? Uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. That's what yeah. I heard. I mean, yeah. how... You must have been completely drained, right? That's a lot of... No, I was, no? yeah. I was, I was, yeah I was, I, what was I, 42? And I was offered a different role in, role in Glengarry. Which one? I, I'm not saying. But okay, then right. I was opted, I opted to do Link because yeah. that was the, would have required the least amount of time on the set. But and it's having Pacino, said that, yeah. I had the a wonderful time because it was rehearsed like a play. Yeah. And... Everyone, that cast, was wonderful. Yeah. And I got to sit with Pacino for <laughs> days, and we talked in between takes. I'd met Pacino in 
76 when I was here doing Comedians. Yeah. Met him then and then uh, got to know him. Met him through uh, going to see Lee Strasberg ah. teach. You uh, went with him to go see it? No, I was at the... You, you, you were invited to go and watch the open crit sessions. Yeah. And then... As an honoured guest, you'd be invited to have lunch with Lee Strasberg at uh, Joe Allen's, and mm -hmm. uh, Pacino was at the table then. There's some interesting things happened then when... Um, I don't know if I should tell this story, but Anna... Yeah, they're all dead. Anna, <laughs> Anna Strasberg, his wife, yeah. was saying to me about Strasberg, who yeah. was holding forth yeah. at the table, don't you love this man, don't you love yeah. him? And, uh, she said, uh, she nodded towards Pacino and said, uh, you know the scene at Dog Day Afternoon when outside the bank and everyone shouting Attica, yeah. Attica? And she said, she very proudly said, well, that's one of Lee's exercises. That's the caged animal exercise. And I said, why couldn't he imagine he was outside a bank with people shouting Attica, Attica at him? And she swiftly turned her head away and never spoke to me again. <laughs> But then I talked to Pacino about it and how he responded yeah. to... And it, it was... It, lots of Strasbourg's teaching was incredibly valuable. Yeah. And he said he took what he needed. You know, he wasn't a devout follower, but he took what he needed from it. And, uh, yeah, and then we, we've kept in touch yeah. over the years. Interesting. Which well, is nice. So a sad chapter, I think, would be Dark Blood because there was someone in that movie with you, a movie that was never completed, I think 11 Days Shy being completed, uh, your co-star was River Phoenix, and I think he kind of worshipped you because of Brazil, and certainly uh, I think you were going to be his way to meet Terry Gilliam, maybe even yeah. on the day, was it on the day that he died? We'd, uh, we'd yeah, because we 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 talked all through, we were together for six weeks in Utah, and if you want to get close to someone, go and film in Utah <laughs> for six weeks because there's nothing, nothing there. else to do. And his uh, crew, should we say, his, his friends and people who traveled with him, we'd have dinner every night. And I would talk to him during the day. And he was interested in all kinds of things to do with because he was only 23. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him about theater and told him theater stories, which he relished. And... Um, yeah, and he was hoping to meet Gilliam. And we'd, I'd, I'd grown very, very fond of him. And something, you know, you knew something had gone wrong as soon as we came back to L.A. I don't know, because certainly in Utah, there was no... Maybe people were smoking a bit of weed, maybe... But that was it, mm -hmm. a beer. And uh, there was no evidence of... And I was with him a lot, and I don't do drugs, and there was no evidence at all. But we got back to L.A. and something clicked. And we had a day's filming and he, he wasn't well. You could tell and he, he, I saw him at lunchtime and he was uh, freezing cold and uh, the heat was up. And then that night he went to the... Um, yeah, Viper Room. The Viper Room and that was it. And I, I got a call at five. I think it was five in the morning from the producer whose first words were, River's dead. It was unbelievable. Oh. We met at the studio the next day and it was announced it was a wrap because we'd done six weeks of exteriors. We had two weeks of interiors to do and there's no way we could salvage it. And I met his family and I met Joaquim and oh. his sisters yeah, and yeah. mother. It was an extraordinary time and a sad time. Yeah. And um, 
also terrible for George Schleitzer, who sort of had a, a, quite a fight to get this film uh-huh. made anyway. Uh-huh. And he, you must know this, he managed to get, after 20 years or whatever, managed to get hold of the footage. Oh. And he did an assembly of the film and did a, a full edit, which is, and it's a version which is minus the interiors. Yeah. And it was shown at Berlin three years ago, I think, four years ago. Did you see it? Yeah, I went to Berlin yeah. and I saw it. And what happens is the film's going on and we get to a missing scene, a freeze frame, and you hear George's voice describing what happens in that scene. Wow. And then it, and it's, uh, it's quite powerful, wow. even in this fractured state. Yeah. And uh, it's available. It's on DVD. And it, there's a, a, an edition of DVDs out now, which is the all of George, George Schleitzer's work. George, okay. sadly, also passed now. Mm-hmm. But his wife has worked hard to, to get this That's amazing. volume out, and wow. it's available. Well, after that, I just would briefly mention a few things en route to others. I mean... Age of Innocence for Scorsese, uh, 93, an important one. Barbarians at the Gate TV movie that same year. You and James Garner both received a lot of recognition. You had uh, Emmy and Golden Globe nominations for that. And then Carrington to go to the Cannes Film Festival in 95 for playing this closeted gay writer in a platonic relationship. You win the Best Actor Prize at Cannes. Feels like all of this is building a great momentum. You must have been feeling feeling good about things going into a movie that was probably unlike any other, which would be Evita with it's you and Madonna. And I just wonder to be doing a musical on film, I believe, for the first time. Just how did you feel about that? I was completely confident about going into it because it was being directed by Alan Parker. Yes. Who is a consummate filmmaker and whatever was going to happen I knew there was going to be something great at the end of it because of him and it it was it's a you know know, you're nervous about a a musical on film there there hadn't been many successful ones in uh, previous years or recent years and also Madonna which was a, a kind of an unknown factor and yet so much unknown about her but she and I clicked (laughs) <laughs> I know I tell the story we clicked teeth yeah. more than once <laughs> because we she had a false piece in the front I had a big big uh, <laughs> false piece of uh, smiling Perron <laughs> and when we kissed it was a bit of an impediment right. but um, <laughs> no I, I I got on with it great and um, you know she's uh, she is who she is she leads a, a life very different from anybody else I know <laughs> But she worked incredibly hard, and I yeah. thought she did a, yeah, a great her. job. Yeah. From what I understand, you were not someone who was ever particularly enamored with Bond movies, and yet a year later you wind up as a Bond villain. Who do, I believe it comes back to the aforementioned agent of yours, uh, James Sharkey. James Sharkey, yeah. 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 What was he? Just really wanted you to be in a Bond movie. He was Tim Dalton's agent for years. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think he liked, he liked the idea more than. You know, I'd, I think I'd always thought it'd be great if you, you could do one, but I was never, you know, a massive fan of the Bond films. Right. I'd liked Connery. I was kind of amused by Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah, and I knew I liked Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. And, um, no, I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Just to remind folks, the reason it's called Tomorrow Never Dies, Tomorrow was the name of this newspaper that is run by your character who was... 
is it fair to say he was modeled on Rupert Murdoch? I think that's fair to say. That's who yes. you. It was yeah. conscious for you, right? Yeah. yeah. And I remember <laughs> I saw one of your interviews where you said you were a little disappointed when this big when you saw the big speech that you had in that film. How did it turn out? Well, it was a very important, very meaningful speech about uh, the state of the the industry at the time, the the media industry, and in film terms, a long speech. Yeah. Uh, and I learned it, and I delivered it. I thought really well, <laughs> and uh, I got to see the movie, and they start the speech, and I I kind of settled down in my seat, thinking this is this is a good bit now, and uh, you immediately cut away. <laughs> To Pierce running through, uh, having fist fights and shooting, and then they and come back a little bit of me, and then they're all <laughs> fighting again, and then you can hear the speech going on in the background. Voice over. Uh, that's the film. That's business. Hollywood for you. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Hollywood, you know, big movie experiences. I would imagine that Pirates of the Caribbean, where you've done, you were three in three of those as as the governor, the father of Kara Knightley's character. The first one, a lot of people were skeptical about that, you know, you're going to make a, a movie out of a ride or whatever. Yeah. Um, what was your outlook going in and, and, and just working on something of that scale? Well, it, and initially, you, when they sent me the script, I, I couldn't find a reason for not doing it. Yeah. At least I get to go to the Caribbean. Yeah, right. Horse <laughs> uh, jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and it turned out to be one of the great experiences because of, again, because of the filmmaker, Gore Verbinski and his, the camera crew and everybody. I just didn't know how they did what they did day after day after day, week after week, turning in incredible work. And the great thing about Gore was that he, uh, in the midst of all this uh, huge you know, machinery going on, he was interested in the acting and the performances mm. and would take time to rehearse the scenes. You know, I think that that was very telling yeah. in those early films yeah. because of his involvement. What did you make of Johnny Depp? He's a bit of a different kind of guy, right? He's a very different. I remember the first day on uh, on set and he was, we ran through the, we did a camera rehearsal and he started speaking as he was speaking and I turned to Jack Davenport and I said, is he really going to do it like that? <laughs> and Jack said, yep. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it's, it's very entertaining. Yeah. yeah. So I think there were ultimately two post-Brazil collaborations with Terry. One of them, there was the issue of it being uh, being released, right? Or just that he was, I'm trying to remember, it got caught up in... Baron Munchausen. Yeah, there was some issue, yeah. right? Well, a, a budget, an issue of the budget. And budget, he right. Should, he started, it was like a... 45, then a 45, 50 million dollar film. And I think he started with 22. Yeah. With promises that more was to come. And he was let down left, right, and ah, center. So that was Nightmare. one. Then the Brothers Grimm, more recently, I think in 2005. New World, also that year with Terrence Malick, who, from what I understand. Yeah, that was half a day. Well, yeah. yeah, but did you have long enough to see? What did you? I mean, he works in a strange way too, I don't right? Think I don't think he spoke to me. I think he said hello, <laughs> and uh, that was it. And then comes uh, almost to the present, but we have to. I would be really executed, I think, if I didn't ask you about Game of Thrones here, because High Sparrow, sort of a, a religious fundamentalist, who maybe most famously makes Cersei walk through the streets nude as her yeah. punishment, but just an interesting character. What, what was surprising to me to learn was that you had been approached at the very beginning 
and passed before Game of Thrones was ever on the air, right? Yeah. yeah. Why did you say no then, and then why did you say yes when they came back to you for season five? Well, it's, it's the genre of filmmaking that doesn't interest <laughs> me. I don't like Sword and Sorcery. I don't like Hobbits, and I don't like... It, it's just not my kind of thing. And I remember getting the first script. It must have been the pilot. Just flicking through it and looking at some of the dialogue, but also looking at the names. Yep. And I thought, no, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. You've got to be able to pronounce your characters. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I passed. And then I waited until it became a, world, a worldwide <laughs> success. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll uh, get some of this. But I'm so when they sent the, this other script to me that, that had the high sparrow, it was I immediately responded to that character as being a, a, a great character. And even though it was in a series, you know, that was all, all storylines were already established. Mm -hmm. I remembered a thing that again, Jimmy Sharkey, who um, he took me on when I was still at drama school. Wow. Jimmy did, and wow. uh, he was a real father figure and mentor to me and I remember him saying when you're looking at a script whether it's a big part or a small part and especially if it's a, a smaller part does the character change the situation mm -hmm. could the situation exist without this character and if it does exist without the character or does it if he doesn't change it you don't do it and uh High Sparrow Definitely yes. was a game changer for the series. Yes. He came in and established his own world, you know, punished. At first, he, he wasn't the punisher. And I hadn't, I hadn't seen this. Uh, I'd only seen series, what did I do, five and six. I'd only seen five. So I didn't know how the character was to develop. And in five, he's a, he's a man of the people. Mm -hmm. He's St. Francis. He's Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I made correlations between Pope Francis and High Sparrow because he was feeding the poor. He was for the poor. He was Bernie Sanders. He was, <laughs> uh, he was washing the feet of the poor. Right. And that sort of kind of went on for a, quite a way through that first series. And then, then he turned oh, me. <laughs> And I think that's an interesting way to go. But, and went uh, out with a bang. I had, again, <laughs> yeah. because... At one of the best times, like Gore Verbinski, like Alan Parker, because of the the what the, the how the production supported the actors, right. the best production values you can imagine, yeah. and the best crews, the best directors, I had the best time. It was great, oh. just great. Last pre two popes question. I thought you were incredible in The Wife, and I thought it was very appropriate that Glenn Close got a lot of accolades for that i to this day do not understand what was going on that you should have been right there for every one of those uh because you two were terrific together just if anyone hasn't yet seen it you're playing a guy who's won a nobel prize for literature which then brings to light some issues that preceded that in in this long marriage and i just wonder you know was that something that you recognized early on? it's not a director i'd known about before the wife. So, what what made you guys sign up to do this? It was such a good script. Yeah, to a, a great story, two great characters. I knew Glenn was going to be doing it. I knew I wanted to work with her. You know, you you want to work with strong actors. You want you don't want to have an easy ride. And when I met Bjorn Runger, the director, I felt a great affinity to him. And he's a 
a filmmaker in Sweden, and I got to see two of his films, mm -hmm. which I liked, and he's also a theatre director. And so we shared the same language about yeah. scripts and about performance. And we had table rehearsals. And we had a lot of time with the script. And Jane Anderson, the screenwriter, was with us in Scotland when we, um, you know, we, you could see the way the film was going and kind of the penultimate scenes. You think, well, it was fairly chronological the way we shot it. And you could see as it was going, we thought we need something different in this scene. And we were able to work it out, the four of us. And uh, that was that was great. That's great. Yeah. So I have to see pretty much all movies on the festival circuit. And this time of year, this is my beat at the magazine. I have not seen a better movie this year than The Two Popes. I think oh, it's great. terrific. You, I've blown away by your playing Cardinal Bergoglio en route to becoming Pope Francis and what people will learn is there was this relationship with Pope Benedict the 16th on the way out as your Pope is on the way in. And I just wonder how you first heard about it and what, what was your reaction to somebody thinking of you for the, for the role of a Pope? That's not your everyday call. Well, no, it went, the day Francis was uh, declared Pope, the internet was full of <laughs> photographs of me and him. <laughs> Even to the point where my one of my sons called me and he said, uh, Dad, are you the Pope? <laughs> um, so there was that. But I like to think I got the part, not just because I look a bit like right, right. I wasn't very flattered, to be honest. <laughs> I, you know, when I look in the mirror, I do not see what other people were seeing. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was... Um, they came to me because they thought I could act. Yeah, but it was... Yeah. Um, and I... I had an initial worries about it. I don't think I was ever going to turn it down. Uh -huh. I was worried because it was, you know, he's such an iconic figure. Uh -huh. You could only get it wrong uh -huh. for, you know, 1.2 billion people. Right. <laughs> um, Did you know who your other pope was going to be when you signed up? Not initially, no. No? No. Tony's name had come up. Because um, I think... I think his name had come up early on, and I don't think it, uh, it was something, whether he was going to be free or whatever, you know, but the and day it was, he said he would do it was one of the best days of my working life because uh, I've, I've had great fortune in some of the people I've worked with. I say that guardedly, <laughs> some of them, but, you know, it, my, their first Hollywood film, yep. working with Jason Robards, who mentored me through mm -hmm. that experience and was absolute delight, would take me around Hollywood. We'd have dinner together. He took me to Mousseau and Frank's where his father had taken mm -hmm. him because he was a mm -hmm. Hollywood kid, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, and James Garner, you mentioned, again, another teacher, really. Mm -hmm. And then I thought this, to get to work with Tony was, uh, was going to be great because I've always admired him. He's a fellow Welshman. There's a bit of an age difference, eight, eight, ten years, eight years, I think. So when I was in my middle ages, Tony was doing everything. Then there was an announcement that he was going to retire. And I was like, yes, <laughs> at last. <laughs> Some roles. We'll get a yeah. chance. No, he didn't retire. No. But the fact that you held him in sort of a degree of awe, was yeah. that useful for playing these parts? It, 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 it was, because I only thought about it in retrospect, why I was as nervous as I was going on, on the set with him. And it, uh, it fed into the character, because Bergoglio 
was in awe of the the office of the Pope. Yeah. And, you know, I was in awe of Tony, and I didn't think about it at the time. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to play it like this because I'm in awe of him. But I I was thinking, I was saying to other people, I feel like a, a beginner. <laughs> I was nervous. I don't know why I feel like this. I, I feel as if I can't act. <laughs> I feel as if I'm in the presence of someone who can really do it. And Tony has great technique. There's a there's a lot of honesty there, but there's, he knows how to, he has technique to support that. Well, Fernando Morelos in Toronto was saying he finds it so interesting that you guys have totally different styles. He said you are like jazz, and Hopkins is by the book. It's a very different way of approaching. Yeah. But you were saying there in Toronto that the way you guys got past the the awe, like the characters, was to have a little fun with each other. Was there something with the call sheet? Well, that, yeah, the fun. I don't think Tony's ever not often in this position, but he was number two right. on the call sheet and I was number one. <laughs> and we constantly referred to each other as morning number one, morning number two. Right. And he would uh, do ev everything he could to undermine my superiority <laughs> by changing the numbers on the trailers or right. putting big messages on his trailer that he was really the star and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but it, oh, we, it was delightful working with him because it... Yes, we had fun, but it was also we focused so much on the work, yeah. and it was a great script. And you know, I was blessed, like the other directors that I've talked about with Fernando, who's I'd been, uh, you know, he was a kind of hero filmmaker mm. from City of yeah. God, which is one of the best films ever made. It's yes. proper, it's real cinema, yeah. and you know that you could have your worries about this script which is about two men talking for a lot of the time but when you know you've got fernando supporting you and how he's going to put it together and also cesar his cameraman who is like and or they're like co-directors mm -hmm. you knew that it was you just had the confidence to be able to just get on with what you were doing and there'd be you know the setups were there would be still cameras say two or three around the set and in the middle was his uh, handheld, getting everything you did. And uh, you didn't have to worry about anything. Last two, I just, first of all, wondered if you could clarify something. I had read at, in one article, which may just have wrong information, but was this originally going to be a series called Call Me Francis, or was it always going to be a <laughs> Like, there was That's somebody that... Francis the Mule. The Mule, yeah, right. Call me Francis. <laughs> With the, yeah. No, I never heard Never that. as a series. Because no. it comes from... Anthony McCartan, who did, has three of the last five Best Actor Oscar winners were in scripts by him, Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, Bohemian Rhapsody. He did, I think, the play, then the book, and now this. But this was always, it seems like it was it was always going to be a feature-length narrative, yeah. or feature-length film. Yeah. yeah. So finally, I wonder if you can just share what it's like to be you in, in this particular moment where I saw you in Telluride in Toronto where this movie just couldn't have gone over bigger. I am so excited to see you tomorrow on Broadway in The Height of the Storm, which is being really well received right now. There's all kinds of excitement around you at the moment. I just wonder, you know, it seems like a pretty, pretty cool time to be Jonathan Price. Yes, it is. I'm, I'm trying to maintain an, an air of cynicism about it because a bit of you thinks, well, I've been down this road before somewhere. Right. Especially with Carrington. Yes. And then it all goes away. Mm -hmm. But I'm just I'm just glad that the film is so good. I, I really am. That's the, the, the main thing. If, I think if I was 
getting this kind of attention for something that I didn't have that much faith in, I, you know, I'd be less excited about it. But um, it's just great. And it was a, that, the, uh, that first screening at Telluride where I'm sitting there, you know how are people going to react to a film about two popes? Mm -hmm. And from the opening frame, which tells the audience, yes, you can laugh, and they came in with a wham of laughter. Uh, you, you settle down and go, oh, they got, they're going to get this. I mean, yeah. Well, congratulations. So good. And it's a real treat to get to speak with you. I appreciate it. Thanks oh, it's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.